the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We finally saw an end to the incessant voting for Speaker of the House in Washington over the weekend, and Kevin McCarthy will now lead the chamber for, well, at least a little bit. But the strange circumstances that produced his speakership are going to have implications for his ability to get things done. And it's also entirely possible he just won't last very long in the position. We'll talk today about what's next in Congress and what it means for American governance. Coming up on Detroit Today, right after the news from NPR. Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you've joined us. It only took more than half a week, but finally, after 15 votes on the floor of the U.S. House of Representatives, the 118th session of the House officially began with a new Speaker of the House. Early Saturday morning, Kevin McCarthy finally received enough votes to become the House's next speaker. But the path for the California Republican, as we all know, was anything but easy. Since last Tuesday, McCarthy faced stiff opposition from the hard-right members of his party, who resisted his nomination with various grievances, seeing him as too much of an establishment figure who's not committed to their ideals. Because of this razor-thin margin that Republicans have in the House after the November elections, this group of 20 Republicans was able to block McCarthy's election, causing a delay the likes of which we have not seen since about 1859. That's more than 160 years ago. Still, after days of negotiations and concessions, McCarthy reportedly has made numerous things, promised a lot of things to members of the far-right Freedom Caucus in order to get their votes uh, that he needed to secure the gavel and begin the term. But how did we get to this historic point? And what does all of this predict for the upcoming term? Does this mean that this small group of far-right Republican members can now exercise way more power than they maybe should in Washington? Or does this provide an opportunity for Democrats to get things done, even though they are technically the minority party in the House? A little later, we're going to be joined by Brown University professor Wendy Schiller to unpack the historical significance of the vote and what history might be able to tell us about what we should be expecting. But first, to help explain how we got here and how Washington is reacting to the vote, we're joined by Katie Edmondson, a reporter in the Washington Bureau of the New York Times who covers Congress. So we have known for almost two months that Republicans would hold the majority in the House of Representatives. That meant that uh, Kevin McCarthy had two months to get ready to hold this vote and to win the speakership. So tell us where that goes wrong. When they get there last week, last Tuesday, uh, he doesn't have the votes. Uh, It seemed like a surprise, uh, but it seemed like the kind of surprise that shouldn't have been surprising. Well, that's right. And I have to say that now Speaker McCarthy has been in Republican leadership for years now, and he has seen at least two previous Republican speakers, John Boehner and Paul Ryan, either harassed or in fact pushed out of the speakership by the hard right Freedom Caucus. And so McCarthy has known for some time that this was going to be a dynamic that also affected his ascent to the speakership. But my sense is that he thought the sheer number of people who were going to oppose him was going to be small enough that he was going to be able to whittle it down by the time he got on the House floor for the first 
vote. We know obviously that didn't happen, but I have to say one of the more interesting parts or stunning parts of last week was actually on that very first vote. Mm -hmm. Prior to the actual first vote, conversation around how many people would vote against McCarthy on the House floor really centered around a group of five very entrenched hard right lawmakers. I always thought that number was a little soft. I thought you were going to see some of the incoming freshmen from very conservative districts opposing him. But to see on that first ballot, 20 Republicans oppose him from the get-go on the House floor was remarkable and a sign of just how much work he still had to do. Yeah. So uh, 15 votes and four or five days of voting. I, I, I loved how interested lots of people who don't pay a lot of attention to what happens in, in Congress uh, during normal times were, were paying and, and talking about uh, on social media. But one of the great things about last week was that the cameras in the House were kind of free to show what was actually going on. An ability that we should note, they don't always have. Uh, once the session starts, those cameras are are more fixed and you can't see the kinds of negotiations that go on between members. But last night you or last week you could you could watch as Kevin McCarthy and and his surrogates wandered around trying to 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 convince people or cajole them into into voting for him. Talk about the things that they were doing during those negotiations, the things that were on the table, uh, you know, the facial expressions, the gestures really suggested that this these were heated conversations they were having. I, I guess I'm among, uh, I think, a lot of Americans who are not quite sure what the what the crux of this this disagreement really was about. Wow. Well, there's a lot there to unpack. Uh, absolutely. We got a sort of unprecedented look on the House floor at those last minute negotiations on late Friday night when McCarthy was just trying to get across the finish line on that 14th ballot. Most of the negotiations that actually moved a critical block of defectors and ultimately allowed McCarthy to win the speakership actually happened behind closed doors. And I think it's a really important point to drive home that we actually, and when I say we, I mean the public, I mean reporters, and I mean actually a majority of rank and file Republican lawmakers don't actually know what the full extent of concessions McCarthy made mm -hmm. because they were made behind closed doors. But we know about a few that were significant and were significant enough to sway some of these really entrenched hard-right rebels, one of which is uh, McCarthy agreed to allow a single lawmaker to call at any time a snap vote that could decide his ouster. And that was something that was extremely important for these hard right lawmakers to use as a measure of accountability for McCarthy to allow them to have this threat looming over his entire speakership essentially, so that if he steps askance of what they'd like to see him do, they can start to try to oust him from the speakership. And the other thing that I wanna note that is quite significant is that he allowed for changes to how some of the most important bills Congress deals with are moved through the legislative process. That's specifically talking about the spending bills that fund the government that Congress must pass every year to ensure the government does not shut down. And essentially, he decentralized a lot of power that leadership had to get those bills over the finish line. And essentially, any lawmaker now can try to muck up the process by amending those bills by calling for debate on very specific provisions in those bills. And I think most people would think on its face, that's a pretty reasonable suggestion. Uh, rank and file lawmakers should have more power over these bills. And I think a lot of people would agree with that. But the bottom line is it is going to make averting a government shutdown significantly more difficult. It also may have an impact on votes, for instance, to to pay our debts, uh, for instance, uh, raise the debt ceiling. In other words, uh, you know, a, a dispute that comes up pretty frequently in in Congress, and that and that 
lots of lawmakers seem to to have uh, an issue with. I, I wonder if you can you can uh, give us a sense of how this might play out, especially in the I guess initial weeks and months of of this session of Congress. If any lawmaker can call a snap vote, does that include? Democrats, obviously. Uh, could you see Democratic mischief, for instance, uh, trying to, to, to undermine the Speaker's ability to get things done? And, and how likely is it that this group of 20 Republican legislators who negotiated this deal in exchange for their votes for the Speaker, how likely is it that they will, they will use that um, you know, as, a, as a tool to, to check the Speaker? Well, Democrats, any Democrat could move to force this snap vote. It's going to be a question for Democrats what their strategy is here. My guess is they want to show voters ahead of the next midterm elections that they are the adults in the room, that they are there to deliver solutions for the American voters. And so they're going to keep mischief to a minimum. But that that's a strategy that they're going to have to figure out. And I think they're still having talks about that. I think they also might be loath to call that vote because it's something for Republicans to unite around. And there are clearly going to be a lot of divisions naturally within that Republican conference. Insofar as these hard right lawmakers calling a snap vote, it's obviously very much on the table. I think at least in the next few months, they're largely going to use this mechanism to their advantage, more so in the threat of calling the vote rather than actually advancing one to begin with. But again, as long as they have this mechanism hanging over McCarthy's head like a sort of Damocles, they should feel pretty reassured that he is going to use his power as speaker in a way that behooves them and that he is not going to want to approve any type of legislation or strategic move that they're not going to like. And that is really the crux of the true power of this mechanism. Yeah. I'm talking with uh, Katie Edmondson. She's a reporter in the Washington Bureau of the New York Times who covers Congress. We're talking about uh, the news over the weekend that Kevin McCarthy finally did win a vote on the floor of the House of Representatives in Washington to become the next speaker. That means uh, the next session of Congress is underway. All of the new representatives from here in Michigan and all around the country are now uh, officially members of Congress and uh, legislation can start start moving through uh, the chamber. We're talking about uh, the process of getting here, what that means for the governance of uh, the House going forward. Uh, a group of 20 Republican legislators really uh, shaped the, the, the dynamics of what uh, Kevin McCarthy's leadership will look like, how, ten, how much um, uh, power he will have and how tenuous his grip on the speaker's chair uh, might be. We would love to hear from you as well during this conversation. Give us a call and tell us uh, what you make of this week-long fight over who should be the Speaker of the House. Does this weaken Speaker McCarthy's influence on the party give power to the far right? Uh, or do you think this is a way for uh, Democrats to leverage more power because uh, the Republican caucus is likely to be embroiled in uh, some real tensions as they get started with their work. The number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you in the conversation that way. I want to talk a, a little, uh, Katie, about uh, about the speaker and the, the the role of speaker and some criticisms that have been leveled about uh, the, the 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 power that the speaker has from somebody here in Michigan. Justin Amash uh, was a congressman from Western Michigan uh, for a few terms, and and uh, then um, he he left. The Republican Party, which which is what elected him, um, and then left Congress uh, a few years later. But last week, he was really active in in uh, discussing what was going on in Washington and especially on the floor uh, of the House. There were a few times I saw him 
show up on the floor of the House uh, during these these negotiations. But he tweeted last week that concentrated power has decimated the House and turned legislators into what he calls actors. And he posts a chart that uh, shows how many votes the Speaker has allowed on floor offered amendments each year. And those are amendments that are not pre-screened uh, by, by leadership. In 2011, for instance, there were 414 amendments. He says uh, since 2017, there haven't been any. Uh, I wonder if you can talk about this dynamic, uh, concentrating power, not just in the speaker, but in leadership, uh, and and whether that really justifies some of the complaints that uh, this group of 20 Republican legislators had about uh, making Kevin McCarthy speaker and how that might play out now that presumably the speaker has just a little less power than uh, than they have had in the past. I was not surprised to hear those concerns from uh, former Congressman Amash last week. We actually saw him off the speaker's lobby uh, several times during the week. Mm-hmm. I think he was there to offer advice. This, this was a longstanding gripe of his, and there's some truth to it. This is somewhat of a reasonable complaint, right? If you are a rank and file lawmaker and you want to be responsive to your constituents' concerns and you come to D.C. thinking about all of the change you're going to enact only to find that as a freshman you basically have zero power and will not even be able to offer amendments to some of the spending bills, which are now some of the only big pieces of legislation that do get passed into law, you'd probably be pretty frustrated, right? On the other hand, some of these bills, the spending bills in particular, they simply have to pass in order for government, the government not to shut down and for government agencies to be able to provide really incredibly important services to Americans, right? And so it does become an issue of trying to balance letting everyone have a voice with the efficiency of passing them because, as you can imagine, As Congress continues to get increasingly polarized, it becomes incredibly inefficient to try to put not only more than 400 members of Congress in a room to sort out how this legislation should be written, but particularly when you have members on one side who may say, hey, let's let's defund whole government agencies, and you have members on the other side saying, actually, I think we need to be providing hugely significant increases in service to our voters. And so at the end of the day, it really becomes and has become for leadership a question of let's let's just try to get this done quickly. Let's have a few of us who are typically more moderate sit in a room and try to hammer this out. And then let's just pass it because they always work up until the very last moment. They always work up to their deadlines. And so by the time they finally get a product in place, they just need to get it over the finish line. And that has been the governing reality in D.C. that has become so frustrating to many rank and file lawmakers. Yeah. So so what's the likelihood that that um, this new speaker's role, I guess, or this new diminished concentrated power in the speaker, which is circumstantial. Uh, it's not a structural change. But but I guess what's the, the, the chance that maybe this holds and and ushers in a, a different era where um, where there is more shared power among among the caucus that's in the majority? Well, frankly, I think that the most likely manifestation that we are going to see from these changes is not going to be kind of a kumbaya environment where now everyone is empowered and everyone has a voice and can work together, but rather dysfunction, right? When it comes to averting a government shutdown, when it comes to raising the debt ceiling to ensure that the United States does not default, um, McCarthy has really specifically empowered these hard right lawmakers. He put, and I don't want to get too wonky here, but he put on the Rules Committee, which essentially governs what bills can be voted on and to what degree they can be amended. They're they're kind of the gatekeepers of what goes on the House floor. He has put a critical block of hard right conservatives on that gatekeeping Mm -hmm. committee, and they are not going to be interested in advancing, for the most part, 
bipartisan compromise legislation. They are they have said that they do not want to raise the debt ceiling. And so I think it's much more likely that this sets us up to be on a pathway where we see a collision that turns into dysfunction rather than a, a linking of arms across the aisle for bipartisan legislation. Okay, Katie Edmondson, reporter in the Washington Bureau of the New York Times. Really great to have you with us to talk about uh, the new session of Congress, which will get underway this week. Thanks so much for joining us on Detroit Today. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to be joined by Professor Wendy Schiller of Brown University, who will provide some historical context for last week's chaotic vote for speaker and what it might mean for Congress moving forward. Also want to continue to hear from you on the phones and on social. 313-577-1019 is the number here. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. And we can include you that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Did you know it costs $650 per hour to operate WDET? That's a few dollars more per hour this year than last year. One big reason is that WDET now pays our interns. We're leveling the playing field for underrepresented and low-income applicants to learn journalism, podcasting, audio engineering, and more. I'm Diane Sanders, and I coordinate the WDET Internship Program. We're training the next generation of young people for the future news and information workforce. Financial help from General Motors, Verizon, the Polk Foundation, and the Clarence and Jack Himmel Foundation helped us jumpstart our internship program. You can help with a tax-deductible gift to WDET. Learn more at WDET.org slash interns. WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. As we mentioned at the beginning of the show, the chaotic vote for the Speaker of the House last week was historic. In 1789, there had only been 14 Speaker elections that required multiple ballots prior to last week, and 13 of those occurred before the Civil War. But that leaves us wondering, how do the events of last week fit into the history of Congress? And are there any lessons we can learn from that history? To help us answer these questions and more, we're joined now by Professor Wendy Schiller. She is the Chair of Political Science and a Professor of International and Public Affairs at Brown University. Professor Schiller, welcome back to Detroit Today. Ah, thanks. thanks for having me. Yeah. So let's start with uh, your reaction to what we've seen in the last seven days in in Washington. It's been, I think, really interesting and, and kind of riveting to watch. Um, but but I would imagine as, uh, you know, uh, an expert on, on government and history, uh, it, it took on maybe a, a different dimension uh, for you. Tell me how you felt watching what uh, what we saw on the House floor all last week. Uh, well, there, there are two sort of historical lenses to think about what we just saw. One is, as you just said, you know, when parties weren't really solidified, particularly our two-party system before the Civil War, there was so much chaos because there were so many different parties with very different policy goals. They were regionally based, typically, or economically interest-driven, and they there was no sort of two-party overarching frame. You know, but after the Civil War, we do find the divide, you know, intensifies, uh, but it's a very clever, very smart entrepreneur politician, Thomas Brackett Reed from Maine, who comes in in the, in the early 1880s and then becomes speaker in the late 1880s, uh, 1889 in particular, and he represents Republican parties, and he wants to make sure to get Republican policies enacted. There are 300 members of the House by this time. It's a pretty big organization, but it's still not quite organized in a party top-down way. He does that through a series of 
of changes, which is, is interesting, is sort of the opposite of what uh, people like Chip Roy and Matt Gates and Lauren Boebert were asking for this week. Uh, and that begins the era of party government in the House. So that's a long time ago. You think, well, how does that have anything to do with what we're dealing with now? And government, federal government was much, much smaller, but there was a very important economic concern, which was trade, and they needed to pass a really big trade bill, the Republicans, and they had particular things they needed. Similar, but not quite exactly the same as the debt ceiling that we're going to face this summer. So when you think about it, the party coalesced and gave the speaker a lot of power over themselves. The rank and file said, okay, we're going to run as a party, act as a party, and we're going to give you, Thomas Brackett Reed, all this power to make it happen. And that was a model for a while. And then, as you've heard about in 1923, the Republican Party sort of fell apart. They had a lot of seats. They won control. But they were divided. They were divided regionally and economically. And they couldn't quite get their act together to do the same thing. So the era of strong party leadership and government kind of faded in favor of very strong committee chairs. Uh, and in the Democrat Party, when they took over in the 30s, they were from the South. And they had particular policy goals. And they just kept a, a very strong hold on whatever the Congress, particularly the House, could do. So the Speaker wasn't that powerful. It doesn't happen until 1994 when Newt Gingrich comes back in with the Republicans with shared policy goals again that the Speaker gets that power back. So if you're young enough or old enough, depending on your listener uh, base, <laughs> um, when, you're, when you remember that uh, as someone my age, you realize that's the era, the more modern era of strong speakers, which is what most Americans are used to right now. But it's not the norm necessarily for the entire Congress for our history. Yeah. So so what is it that we're seeing right now? There's reporting that Kevin McCarthy, the new speaker, gave hardline members of his party a lot more power with the concessions he negotiated. How is this going to make Congress look different, especially to people who don't spend as much time as they may have in the last seven days watching and paying attention to what goes on uh, in the House? So what, what will be different is that, you know, so much attention has been paid to the Senate and the filibuster and how one senator uh, can block things up and hold things up and, you know, we can't get things done. The majority can't get the majority party pass, policies passed. That's what the House will start to look like, much more like the Senate. And, the re- and, and it's important because the Senate is capped at 100 members. And the House is much bigger, much bigger organization. It's very difficult to get anything done if lots of people um, can, you know, object, can raise questions, can offer an amendment on the floor. That's really essentially what the House looked like up until the 1870s, really chaotic. And that's why Reed went in and said, there's 300 of us. We can't run the show this way. It's got to be streamlined. And that's the way we've seen legislation go through. You're also seeing regional differences in the Republican Party. You know, you got your Midwestern and your California Republicans and some newly elected New York Republicans. Um, you know, they want the economy to flow. They want less regulation. They maybe want to work on, you know, particularly the Midwest, you know, reduced climate change regulation. But the South uh, West and the Southeast Republicans, you know, they're, they're really ideological. They want to really gut the federal government. They want border control. They don't have the same exact policy goals. So the, so the chaos or the fighting you're going to see is not just uh, because a couple of people are getting up and, and, you know, holding up things. It's because there are different policy goals now in the Republican Party, and there's no mechanism for them to deal with it. So the American public is going to see that on the House floor. I, for one, you know, I worry about the debt ceiling. I worry about passing funding for government. But on the other hand, I would like to see more voices in our legislative process. I'd like to see... Um, you know, bills come to the floor with 72 hours notice, so mm-hmm. everybody can see what the House is voting on. I'd like to see more amendments offered on the floor. You get these bills come through, and there's no amendments. You know, it just goes right through, and we have no idea what's in it. Now the American people can have the opportunity to uh, witness a little dysfunction, or maybe a lot, but also have, a, have more information about what the House of Representatives is actually doing. And so from your perspective, then, this this might be, a good change. This might lead to, I guess, a loosening of control and power around the speaker and leadership and spreading it around a little more liberally among among rank and file members. 
Right. So, so in an ideal world, you know, um, it would be a really good thing. And the Democrats did this, by the way, in the 1970s, after 40 or 50 years of uh, 40 years, essentially, of Southern conservative control, more liberals and moderates were elected, and they changed the rules and distributed power, uh, and then they reconsolidated pretty much under uh, Pelosi. So the Democrats have experimented with this. You know, it, I think the concern is that the policy goals of the of the very, very right wing of the Republican Party right now, you know, could undermine the actual process itself of government and the rule of law. So I think if the Republicans go after big budget spending, you know, we should have 12 or 13 separate 12 uh, separate appropriations bills. We have one huge one. Nobody knows what's in this bill. I don't know uh, if anybody's ever seen the movie Dave, but there's an accountant in it that says, what's in this bill? We have no idea how the government spends its money, the federal government. It's just too big. So when you have separate appropriations bills, they'll be big, but they're easier to look at. They're easier to see how your tax dollars are being spent. However, they're also easier to cut. So it's easier to cut something in one appropriations bill out of 12 than it is an omnibus because you have to pass the omnibus or the government shuts down. So that's that leaves a lot of social spending very vulnerable in this climate. Um, and so there are policy down, you know, downsides to this openness to a particular wing of the Republican Party. But ideally, yes. Yes. I mean, having more information, having more debate, having more input, uh, having less centralized control at the top is is better for the democratic process. Yeah. I'm talking with Wendy Schiller. She's a professor and chair of the political science uh, department at uh, Brown University. We're talking about the new leadership in Washington. Uh, Kevin McCarthy will be the Speaker of the House, at least for a little while, uh, after a vote uh, this weekend. The 15th vote on the floor was the one that got him over the top after about 20 members of his own party really held up uh, his ascension to the speakership because they wanted uh, they wanted things to be different. They wanted to uh, maybe run the House a little differently. And of course, they have some ideological differences with the Speaker and uh, his caucus, his supporters. Uh, we would love to hear from you during the conversation as well. Uh, what do you think of this protracted fight over uh, the Speaker of the House? What does that say about this Congress? Uh, do you believe Republicans will be able to come together as a party and actually govern after all of this? Can Speaker McCarthy effectively oversee this Congress? Or has this vote really weakened his ability to lead? Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you in the conversation that way. Ed on Twitter says, the GOP made a monster and made him commander-in-chief. Now they're surprised. He made many monsters that are terrorizing the village. Uh, I, I think what Ed is referring to or who Ed is referring to there is, is Donald Trump, the former president. Um, Wendy Schiller, what do we make of the influence of Trump here? I, I think Ed may have it a little upside down. Trump was supporting uh, Kevin McCarthy, uh, who, who was trying to get uh, other members of his party who would otherwise be Trump supporters, I think, uh, to vote for him. Sometimes it's hard to keep track, I think, of of the alignments in the party as all of this uh, sorts itself out. But but what is the role of Donald Trump's disruption of not just uh, the Republican Party, but of American politics? Uh, what what role is that all playing in this speaker fight? Um, so so Ed, I think Ed has it has it right, and then um, it, it's a reflection of where Trump is in terms of his clout that he supported Kevin McCarthy, I and mean, Kevin McCarthy, could, he couldn't get him over the, the top. I mean, he couldn't actually get these people to relent. You know, he asked them to do it on Wednesday, and they wouldn't listen to him. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the interesting thing, is sort of the waning. And, and but I think Ed's exactly right that there are two things. Trump, the Trump style has been replicated successfully. Trump supported these particular members themselves, but also they have adopted a very bombastic Trump style that has appealed a lot to their constituents. Uh, Lillian Boebert from Colorado barely got reelected, but she got reelected. Um, so I think that it's it's uh, the problem is that you know when somebody replicates you and they do it just as well, then they don't need you anymore. So I think that's an excellent point. I think for McCarthy, he has to own much more of this. I think because he did not denounce Trump after January sixth. 
I think the January 6th insurrection and the violence we just saw in Brazil, where it's been completely replicated, although they were not in session on Sunday, so it wasn't going after individual legislators. But nonetheless, the destruction of property, the rampaging, the saying the election wasn't fair, that's really reminiscent and copying of January 6th. McCarthy had a chance for the Republican Party themselves to break from Trump and disavow the violence and disavow that wing of the party that is now alive and well in the House and showing their clout. But he didn't take it. He reversed and went to Trump and said, you know, all's well, you know, we love you still. And that was a huge political mistake on his part. And I think it's a mistake for the country because it could have righted the ship for the Republicans where they could focus, like I said, on fiscal discipline, border security, uh, things that a lot of Americans care deeply about. But instead, he didn't do that. And it, it really came back to haunt him last week. Yeah. Um, I, I wonder what the influence of Trump going forward is on the House's agenda, given, again, that, that this group of 20 Republicans who were giving McCarthy such a hard time are from the Trump wing of, uh, of the party, at least uh, from, on, on policy matters. What, what are we likely to see in terms of that kind of interaction, especially as we get closer to 2024 and a, a possible, at least, second Trump run for the presidency? You know, I think there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of, uh, among some of them, a lot of strategic calculations about whether they can ride the waning Trump wave and ultimately just replace him. So you've got Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's got a tremendous following. You've got Matt Gates, who may or may not be uh, indicted uh, for separate issues, uh, having to deal with um uh, child sex trafficking. Uh, so we'll see if the Justice Department indicts him. But you got Chip Roy from Texas, who is uh, was a former staffer for T- Ted Cruz, mm-hmm. and he sees a, an opportunity to get the limelight. You know, the limelight's great, but you know, if you share the limelight with five or six other people, and then there's this giant shadow named Trump, it's not it doesn't burn as brightly for you. You've got a lot of younger Republicans who want to make a run for higher office or for power, and they're going to want to be nice to Trump and pay respects to. Trump, but I think they see an opportunity, you know, to convince the Trump base that they're the next version, that they're the ones that they should go with. Trump will be, you know, he's in his late 70s. He may or may not be successful in getting the nomination. I think people like Ron DeSantis of Florida are going to try to take advantage of of the changing winds and probably run against him. So I see, um, I see that this wing of the party understanding that they can take all these elements of a Trump campaign or Trumpism. And Trump really didn't have any policy goals. I mean, as we recall, it was all about Donald Trump. It wasn't really about policy. Uh, and so that's where they see an opening. But the problem is that I, I see a ceiling on that nationally. We saw independents barely go for Democrats in 2022, but they still went for Democrats by about three percentage points across the country. And Michigan, we saw some real change yep. in the voting landscape, right? So if you think about that, those, those independents have stayed with the Democrats 20 2018, 2020, and 2022, they're not going to go to the party of Lauren Boebert, Matt Gates, and Chip Roy in 2024. And so that's the big problem nationally for the Republicans. It doesn't make a difference in individual ambition, but I think nationally it hurts the chances of any Republican nominee to alienate the independent wing of American voters. Okay, we're going to take another quick break. When we come back, we'll continue this conversation about what's going to happen in Congress now that we have a Speaker of the House. What happened last week as we saw the House vote 15 times before it could choose a Speaker. I want to continue to hear from you as well on the phones and on social. Frank and Livonia, John on the east side, we'll get to you if you want to join them. 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. for tuning in. Our guest is Wendy Schiller, a professor and chair of political science at Brown University. We're talking about 
Washington and the U.S. House of Representatives, its new leadership, the difficult path that leadership had to take last week, 15 votes before Speaker Kevin McCarthy could claim leadership of the House of Representatives and what it means in historical context, but also going forward. What will governance look like in the House of Representatives because of not only this close vote for Speaker, but the presumed rule changes that were uh, adopted as well as part of the bargain to get those votes for him uh, that make his tenure there a little more precarious. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. If you'd like to join the conversation, that's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation that way. Let's start with John on the east side today. John, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot. Uh, I just can't get enough of this, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I just have a simple question. There was a battle for five days with, what, 400 members, 400-some members of Congress that really didn't get the leader they wanted anyway. And the main point of, the, of what we heard was they wanted to dwindle it down to one person could call for the recall. All right, so does that mean call for the recall or or reelect somebody else. I mean, obviously it does, but do you have to recall them then, then uh, vote again? So how many weeks could this take? I just, I just don't understand the reasoning behind this. Yeah, it's a great question, John. Like the practical end of this snap vote, as they call it. Uh, Wendy, can you explain more about how that works and and how dangerous, I suppose, that is to Kevin McCarthy? As the speaker, does that mean, you know, just any day, uh, if he has a bad day, they can decide, well, that's it, you're out? Um, yeah, it is. I mean, you know, it's actually been in place under the Republican majority for quite some time. I mean, Nancy Pelosi asked her party to get rid of it when she came back in 2018, 2019. So it's been there, it just wasn't really exercised, although John Boehner stepped down and then Paul Ryan stepped down. So rather than being voted out, it's used as a threat or a cudgel. And I think your your point is really well taken. Well, they, what they do is a motion to vacate the chair. So what it would be is I say, well, I want to get rid of the current speaker, and I'll put the motion to vacate the chair. And so if a majority votes to vacate the chair, that's essentially a no vote on Kevin McCarthy. So it's sort of the same thing happens all at once, which is that they oust McCarthy on that vote. Uh, but, you know, it's, gonna, it's very disruptive because if there is no uh, speaker that is controlling the chamber, then the Republicans no longer have majority control of the chamber. So the speaker is a constitutional office in the Constitution. Uh, it's unclear whether the framers ever wanted it to be a party leadership office. It wasn't for the first, you know, 80 years mm-hmm. of, the, of the House. But uh, it's now a party office. So if you do that, you automatically send the House into chaos because there is no majority party. Uh, and there's no leader of the majority party. So it's expensive. And I think once these, once Kevin, you know, the idea of holding your enemies closer, that idea, you know, Kevin McCarthy has put some of these people on the rules committee. Usually it's a nine to four majority. I think they've expanded that majority. I think that's what their plan is to add some of these, um, these right wing members. Uh, but they're going to get power that way. You know, if you're on the Rules Committee and the House is functioning, you're powerful. If you're Jim Jordan and you're chair of the Judiciary Committee and he was a McCarthy um, a supporter, then you have power. But if McCarthy's not Speaker anymore and the, the House isn't a majority institution anymore on that day or how many days it takes, you have no power left. So I think McCarthy's counting on some of these people getting used to having power and not wanting to give it up and understanding that as long as he's Speaker, they'll keep their power. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Again, John, really great question, and uh, thanks for the call. Let's go next to Frank in Livonia. Frank, what's on your mind? Hey, good morning, Stephen. Um, You know, I was thinking that this whole thing is still playing out from uh, the way we wrote our Constitution and how, uh, you know, southern slave-holding states, you know, uh, wrote the, you know, all the Constitution and the rules and things and how basically a small minority can uh, can can really uh, run the Congress. Uh, you know, we're still suffering from this. You know, and I think that you know that also leads me to um, you know the, the the black congressional black caucus really missed an opportunity to walk into Kevin McCarthy's office and say, you know, hey, what you got? What you got for us? <laughs> and I think too, this is this is something that you know it's this is the way the game is played. We're not going to change these things. And and I just really think that. The, the Black Caucus is missing 
out on, you know, they're so uh, dominated by the Democratic Party. If they could pull out of that. So, Frank, you think you think that that by pledging support to McCarthy, for instance, that they might have extracted some sort of some sort of concession, uh, you know, uh, that they they could have the kind of control that this this Republican caucus is having. Uh, Correct. You know, he only needed, what, four votes? Right. You know, I mean, how many people I mean, how how many uh, members of the Black Caucus are? You know, that would send a message to both parties. And, and that's what I really think it's is an interesting. Is yeah, it's an interesting theory. I mean, Frank, I, I really appreciate you calling and and suggesting that I can think of a lot of reasons that that members of the Black Caucus in Washington might not want to reach out to McCarthy and they would be policy reasons. But but Wendy Schiller talk about that kind of. Uh, again, who has the, who has power now, and who may have more power than they had before because of this this kind of tenuous grasp that McCarthy has on the leadership? Well, you know, this is it's such it, so. This is a it's a very interesting point. I think there's a couple. Just to address that really quickly, you know, I think at the moment, if my math is right, I think there are more than fifty. It could be between forty-seven and fifty-three members of the Black Caucus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Hakeem Jeffries was the former president of the you know leader of the Black Caucus. Right. They so weren't going to vote would, against him. It was it was right. pretty tough. I think they were going to have to vote for Hakeem Jeffries, <laughs> his congressman from New York. However, your point here's what I think, and maybe this is you'll think, well, that doesn't seem smart. I think some of the Republicans who are either planning, you know, a lot of Republicans come and serve for a while, and then they leave and become lobbyists. And they're thinking about their future in the Republican, you know, out of Washington or in Washington lobbying sphere. So they don't want to rock the boat too much. But you could have some wild card Republicans who plan on retiring, let's say, uh, before 2024, going to the Republican Party and saying, if you keep, if you keep catering to this wing of the party, we're gonna, we're gonna do a motion to vacate the chair and we're gonna vote for Hakeem Jeffries. We're gonna give the Democrats back control of the House because you are too off the ranch because you're going to take this party down in 2024, and we can't afford it. I think that's the dynamic that develops within the Republican Party, because those 201 members who voted for Kevin McCarthy are furious with those 20. Mm-hmm. And they're furious in particular with the, the names that we've been floating around t- today in the conversation. So I think there is leverage amongst the wing of the Republican Party that's willing to say, I'm not coming back anyway. I don't care anymore. You're so dangerous that we're just going to give the House back to the Democrats if you don't back down. Hmm. And I see that as a potential possibility in the Republican caucus as well. So I think there's a challenge to McCarthy from the far right, but I also think there's a challenge from some older, moderate Republicans that may say, I don't want to even be in the House anymore. I'm out. I don't need these people. And I'm going to actually threaten to give the House back to the Democrats. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, Frank, really interesting idea. Glad you called and, uh, and floated that. Let's go to Ken in Ferndale. Ken, welcome to the show. Thank you. And um, I was I was curious to know if Ms. Schiller um, thinks that this motion to vacate uh, clause was was stuck in to to try and keep the option of of throwing the House into chaos and dysfunction. They just spent they just spent effectively four of 160 odd days that they're going to end up having in 2023 in session uh, in, 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 you know, dithering. And and it seems like they may have just put that in there so that they could pretend, you know at any point throw the house back into that dysfunction. Hmm. And the other question yeah. that I have is, and, and then I'll listen my the answer off the off the air. Every session, I think the hundred and seventeenth Congress ended up with thirteen members who did not make it to the end of the term. And I'm curious to know, uh, Ms. Schiller, what what you think this Congress is going to look like in 2024. Well, see, that's exactly, so th- th- I'll take the second question first. That's what I'm thinking about. I don't think any Democrats are going out the door uh, because, you know, voluntarily, if they don't get sick, God forbid, but I don't think they're going to leave because the White House is controlled by a Democrat and the, and the executive branch is so powerful, you can always funnel benefits to your district. So they're in a good position. I think the Democrats are feeling quite good about the future. I think there are Republicans who are going to leave. I think they're going to, like I said, I think they're going to decide they can't take it anymore, but they may throw the House into disruption um, on their way out. So I see more more people leaving on the Republican side who are not part of the right wing, uh, you know, really right wing movement. The destabilization is exactly you're exactly right about their points. If you want a smaller federal government, you have to show the American people that you can cripple it by crippling the House. But life still goes on. 
you know, we still go to work, we get in our cars, and if you're remote or you're not remote, you know, hospitals still work, the VA still works for veterans, you still get your Social Security d- direct deposit. You know, there's a real political implication for having no more checks and rather direct deposit for most uh, older people on Social Security. And then that's always exempt from a government shutdown now. So you, when you think about that, if you can prove that we can get along with a much smaller crippled federal government, you can eventually shrink the federal government, which is really what they want. And the previous caller remarked about the South and about race you know, and about, uh, about the federal government. There's a real antipathy towards a strong federal government that does lie mm-hmm. in Reconstruction from occupying the South after the Civil War. And they still have it, and they still want to see the federal government shrink. So that's why there's a bonus to them to throwing everything into chaos. But we've seen over the last couple of years, even with the shutdown in 2013, Ted Cruz led that charge and the Republicans won the Senate in 2014. You know, they got back on track, the government reopened, Americans forgot, and the Republicans took the Senate in 2014. So the Republican wing of the party thinks there could be electoral advantages to doing that and substantive advantages by cutting federal spending and reducing the power of the federal government. And I think people are concerned about programs, particularly programs that serve the needy, the poor, the elderly, education, voting rights. You have to really watch that because if, if the federal apparatus gets crippled, those are the programs that will go first. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Wendy Schiller of Brown University, great to have you here. Uh, always great to talk with you. Uh, but your knowledge, particularly of uh, history here and uh, the House of Representatives, is really great for our listeners, thanks so much for joining us on Detroit Today. My pleasure. All right, that's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to talk about Wayne State University receiving $6 million to expand its black studies program. And we're also going to talk about the history, the really important history of black scholarship that comes out of the city of Detroit. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.